0: Okay, we are continuing together our study of the Davidic covenant, and we saw that the Davidic covenant was set forth largely in Second Samuel seven, uh, verses fourteen to sixteen, and um, we saw that that statement in Second Samuel chapter seven, even though it didn't contain the word covenant, and even though there wasn't any swearing of an oath. Uh, in those promises that were made nevertheless as we read 2nd Samuel 23 5 we see that David understood that it was a covenant that God had sworn to him Uh, we looked at Psalm 89 and it was very clear that God had sworn an oath to David that there was an oath sworn promise which was declared to be a covenant and then we saw the same thing in Psalm 132 now, as we looked at Psalm 89 and we looked at the history of Israel and we saw the promises that God had made to David, we saw that David made, strike that, we saw that God made in essence three promises to David and he promised to David that there would be someone to sit on his throne forever. He promised David that the that, that descendant of his would be in a unique way, the son of God And uh, we saw that this uh, descendant of David, who would be understood to be the son of God, uh, would be uh, someone who would build God a house. And so um, uh, as we looked at the fulfillment then of this covenant promise that God made to David, we saw that it was fulfilled in Solomon. Uh, God spoke of Solomon as being His son in a a special, unique way. He was the wisest man that ever lived on the face of the earth. And of course, Solomon was David's son who sat on the throne and he built God a house, didn't he? Okay. And then we saw that this was further fulfilled in the sons that flowed out of David. Uh, There was an unbroken succession of David's sons that sat on the throne of Israel clear up until the time of the captivity when the temple was destroyed. And so God kept the promise that there would be a succession of David's sons to sit upon the throne. Unlike the northern kingdom where there was constantly changing family dynasties ruling uh, over the throne of of Israel, which was the northern ten tribes. Well, then once the captivity occurred um, and the the Davidic throne was vacated and uh, occupied, if you will, by Nebuchadnezzar, Um, the the cry went up, God, in Psalm 89, what happened to the Davidic covenant? And so the first half of Psalm 89 is a tremendous setting forth of all the blessings and promises of the Davidic covenant. And the second half is, okay, God, you promised all this. Uh, It appears you've broken your covenant. And so what we see in response to that is that the exilic prophets, namely Isaiah and Ezekiel, and we looked at a number of passages in both of those books, uh, stood up and says, Oh no, huh? the, the covenant has not been broken. The covenant is going to be fulfilled uh, in a special son of David, who is going to sit on David's throne forever, and who is going to build David, or pardon me, build God a house, a temple. Okay. And so more recently then we've been looking at the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in the person of Jesus Christ. And having looked at the Old Testament passages that predicted that Jesus, uh, who is often called David prophetically, especially in Ezekiel, chapters 34 and 37, um, actually um, was was born. And uh, in his birth, uh, as he was born, a big deal, was made out of the fact that he was the son of David. So what we want to do then is go back and look at the passages we begin to look at last Lord's day. Uh, and we want to turn uh, first of all to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. <clears throat> In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 we have um, the record of the birth of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> And Matthew 1.1 1, 1 is an incredibly significant verse. Uh, it's worthy of long and careful meditation. Uh, Matthew 1.1 1, 1 says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, now notice, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now why in the world did he say that? And the reason why is because Abraham was promised a seed. Right And in his seed would all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so Jesus is the seed of Abraham. He's the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. And then, of course, God promised David a son who would sit on the throne forever and who would build him a a temple, a house. And, of course, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of David of a son who would perpetually sit upon the throne of God. And so... Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Davidic covenant. And that's why notation is made that he's the son of Abraham and the son of David. Okay? So Matthew starts right out with this covenantal framework. Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, Jesus, and the new covenant. And if we don't understand the covenantal framework of the Bible, we won't understand the meaning and the significance of why did he identify him as the son of Abraham and the son of David. Lots of people were the son of Abraham and the son of David, but none in the significant sense that Jesus Christ was. Okay, now let's turn to uh, Luke chapter 1. The gospel of Luke chapter 1. And of course, here we see... Uh, the point being made by the angel to Mary uh, in our memory verse that we're doing today, Luke one thirty to thirty three. Luke chapter one, and um, in verse thirty. Um, well, we'll start out at verse twenty six, um, Luke one twenty six. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Thou shalt bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And of course, Jesus means Savior, or Deliverer. Okay. And, uh, <clears throat> and he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. So, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Okay? So he's the Son of God, he's the child of Mary. Right? Okay? So you can just see the framework of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 here. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of uh, the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Now that's remarkable. That when he's identifying this person that's going to be born of Jesus. Strike that. That's going to be born of Mary. How does he identify him? He identifies him as... The king of Israel as the one who inherits the throne of David and all the covenant promises that were given to David. Okay, he shall give unto him the throne of his father David and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So all the promises of the Davidic covenant are set out here and declared by the angel to be true of Jesus, the son of God who would be born. And so this is the reason why we say Jesus is a king, right? Um, The prophet, the priest, the king. He's the prophet and that he's the final and ultimate revelation of God. God, who in sundry times and diverse manners spoke in times past to our fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his son. Okay? And of course, Jesus is, is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, a priesthood that has no end. He will never die. He will never vacate the office of high priest. And then, of course, he's the king because he is the son of David. Now, um, after this good news is declared, of course, Mary does get pregnant. She's pregnant at that moment. The, the power of the Holy Ghost overshadows her. And, um, and then, of course, nine months passes. And she now, uh, turned to Luke chapter 2, is going to have the baby. So in Luke chapter 2... Um, in verse 4, it says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. Now, why are we making note of this? Because it's important. Okay. Joseph is a descendant of David and Joseph goes to Bethlehem because of the taxation that's been ordered by Caesar uh, Augustus and so the son of David is now in the city of David and he's going to have the son of David in the person of Jesus Christ through his wife Mary. To be taxed verse 5 with Mary's espoused wife being great with child and so it was while they were there the days were accomplished that she should be delivered and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in that same country shepherds abiding in the field keeping watch over their flock by night and lo the angel of the Lord came upon them the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid and the angel said to them fear not behold I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people for unto you is born this day notice in the city of David. No, notice what they made note of. And he was born this day in the city of David, a savior, which is Christ the Lord. And so what we see here is that the angel comes along and he announces, okay, uh, that the Lord Jesus is going to be given the throne of his father, David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And then where is this king born? Well, where else could he, should he be born? But in the city of David, if he's going to take David's throne, he needs to be born in David's city, of someone who is a descendant of David. Okay? And then John chapter 7, the Gospel of John chapter 7, verses 41 and 42, there's a dispute here over Jesus' identity. And um, in John chapter 7 and verse 40, John 7.40, says, Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said of a truth, This is the prophet. That is, the one Moses predicted would come. Others said, This is the Christ. That is, the Messiah. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said... That Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was, so there was a division among the people because of him, so the children of Israel understood very clearly that Messiah had to come out of Bethlehem Micah five two right and they had to under and they understood very well that he had to be a son of David, and so if Christ, if this person Jesus didn't fit this criteria, if he didn't come of the seed of David and he didn't come out of the town of Bethlehem, which was David's town, then he couldn't possibly be Messiah. And they were right. But because Jesus uh, was raised in Nazareth, in Galilee, they thought that must have been where he was born. So they were misinformed about the place of his birth. And of course, that was clarified in the word of God, right? So, The other references we see to Jesus as the son of David in, in, the, uh, in the Gospels uh, are when, when Jesus would cast out demons. Uh, uh, people would say, have mercy on us, thou son of David. Cast this demon out. And the conquering king would come and conquer uh, the enemy, uh, the kingdom of darkness, the king of darkness, and defeat him and cast out the demon out. And then one time there was a blind man and he said, heal me, you son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. And uh, Jesus, of course, healed his blindness. And um, so um, then, of course, when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, remember they said, Hosanna in the highest, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they declared him to be the son of David. And so the children of Israel understood very well that their coming Messiah was a coming king and he was a king uh, in the mold and uh, according to the covenant of David. So the Gospels are very clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Now let's move into the epistles. Okay. Uh, First of all, the book of Acts chapter two. Book of Acts chapter two. And we'll start out at verse 22. Uh, Here's Peter's Pentecost Day sermon. The Holy Spirit has fallen. The people have spoken in tongues. There's a big crowd gather. Peter starts preaching about the significance of this event and what it pretends. And he says in verse 22 of Acts 2, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken him by wicked hands of crucified and slain, whom God has raised up, having loosed from the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be uh, held by it. All right? So here he's preaching Jesus. He says, Jesus came. Jesus did all these miracles. You guys crucified him, and he rose from the grave. Now, in order to back that up, he has to show that indeed this is exactly what the scriptures predicted. And that's what he does. He starts quoting the Old Testament. Like any good preacher, he'll make an assertion and then he'll give a verse to back it up, right? It's what you want out of your preacher. You don't want him to just making assertions. You want him to go to the scriptures and prove that assertion once he makes it. So he says verse 25, "For David speaks concerning him, Jesus." And now he quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. Um, And uh, here's the quotation. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because I will not leave my soul in hell or in the grave, Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known unto me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. End of quote. So he quotes this section out of Psalm 16 where David's speaking. Now he reasons from the passage. All right. He says, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his sepulcher, or his grave, is with us unto this day. In other words, what David spoke in Psalm 16 can't possibly be true of David. Because David did stay in the grave and he did see corruption. In fact, we have his rotting bones with us to this very day. We can point to them. So when David said stuff like, you will not leave my soul in the grave, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption, He couldn't possibly be speaking about himself because he did stay in the grave and he did see corruption. So who's he talking about? Verse 30, therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him. There's our covenant formula, right? The oath sworn promise. Knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, That is, as a physical descendant, he would raise up Christ or Messiah to do what? Sit on his throne. He, seeing this beforehand, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. So, what he's saying here is that David was prophetically declaring the resurrection of Jesus Christ his own son in Psalm 16. And so when Peter says, God raised up Jesus from the dead, he said, and it was predicted in the old Testament in Psalm 16. And David clearly couldn't have been speaking about himself because he's still dead and rotten in the grave. So he had to be speaking about uh, his son, his heir, uh, Jesus Christ, who of course was not left in the grave and whose body did not see corruption. So, verse 32, this Jesus has God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, that is, he's now ascended to heaven, right? And he's now sitting at the right hand of God in heaven and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has now shed forth this, that is the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit speaking in tongues that happened on the day of Pentecost, which you now see and hear. And now he goes back to David again, verse 34. For David has not ascended into the heavens. Where's David? Okay, his body's still in the grave, right? Now his soul's in heaven, but he hasn't, you know, ascended bodily into heaven, right? For David has not ascended into the heavens, But he, David, says himself, and now he quotes Psalm 110 and verse 1, The Lord, that is God the Father, said unto my Lord, that is Jesus Christ, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. So now he quotes Psalm 110 that David also wrote. And David said um, regarding God the Father, that God the Son, who was David's Lord, would sit at the right hand of the Father until all the enemies of Jesus were subdued. And so, obviously, David wasn't talking about himself in Psalm 110 because he's not ascended to the right hand of the Father, his body's still in the grave. Verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ, and I might add, the son of David, who fulfills all of the predictions that David made about, number one, not suffering corruption in the grave, and number two, sitting on the right hand of God until all of his enemies were subdued. So, Peter here makes a big argument uh, from the promises of the Davidic covenant, those oath-sworn promises, that these are all being fulfilled in who? Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, Peter declares, is the fulfillment of the promises of the Davidic covenant and that God made to David. And it's shown in his resurrection, and it's shown in his exaltation, his ascension and exaltation at the right hand of the Father. Now, if you don't understand the significance of the Davidic covenant, all this talk about David and stuff seems kind of weird. But when you understand that, it makes perfect sense. All right. Any questions about that? that all clear? Okay. All right. Now, so, so he quoted Psalm 16 and he quoted Psalm 110. All right. Now, let's turn to uh, the next passage. And... Um, That's in Acts chapter 13. Now, what we saw back in Acts chapter 2 is that Jesus is resurrected. Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father, right, in his ascension, and he's now seated there. And his resurrection and his ascension and his enthronement in heaven beside the Father, at the right hand of the Father, is the restoration of the Davidic throne. Okay? And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ was his elevation to the throne of David. Now the angel said to Mary, right, God will give him the throne of his father David? Well, the question is, when did he get the throne? And the answer is when he resurrected from the grave and ascended to heaven and was seated at the right hand of the father. That's when he was coronated. You know what a coronation is, right? It's when the, 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 the prince is elevated to the throne after the previous king dies. It's called a coronation. And he's then declared officially to be the king. Um, we have coronations. Um, uh, our, our presidents are elected on November 11th, right? But when are they enthroned into the presidency? on January 4th, right? Is that, is that right, January 4th? I think it is, yeah. Um, anyway, it's, it's in the new year. So there's a period of time between their election to the throne of the United States and their uh, establishment there. And so Jesus was born to be the king. He was the crown prince, if you will. But then at his resurrection, he was actually enthroned. All right, so Acts 13, verse 30. In Acts 13 and verse 30. Um, Paul's preaching now. And uh, he's preaching about Jesus and how he was um, crucified. Verse 28. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher in the grave. Now, here we go. Verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, that God has fulfilled the same unto their children, in that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give unto you the sure mercies of David. And so the sure mercies of David, you know where that came from, right? That came from Isaiah chapter 53, pardon me, chapter 55 and verse 3. You know about that. You preached on it, right? Let's just look very quickly. Keep your hand here at Isaiah 55, verse 3. This passage we looked at previously when we were looking at the Old Testament predictions of the one who would occupy the throne of of Messiah, or the throne of David, pardon me. Isaiah 55, verse 3. Verse 1: Ho, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters, and he has no money. Come ye buy and eat, come. Uh, By wine and milk without money without price wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which satisfies not hearken diligently to me and eat ye that which is good and let your soul delight in its fatness incline your ear coming to me here and your soul shall live here it is and I will make an everlasting covenant with you even the sure mercies of David so all the mercies that God promised to David now now when Isaiah wrote this David's dead for a lot of years hundreds okay and, and Israel is in exile and there's no king sitting on the throne and it appears the Davidic covenant has been broken and God says, nope, the mercies I promised David are sure and I'm going to bestow those mercies and it's going to be in the form of the everlasting covenant, which is the new covenant that Jesus made at the last supper. Okay. So back to Acts chapter 13. So, he's, once again, he ties the resurrection of Christ into the Davidic Covenant. You saw that in Acts 2, right? The resurrection was justified on the grounds of the Davidic Covenant. Here, the resurrection, once again, justified on the grounds of the Davidic Covenant. So he says, I will give you the sure mercies of David, verse 34, verse 35, wherefore he says in another psalm, here's Psalm 16 again, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid into his fathers, unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things, which you could not be justified by the law of Moses." So, what he says here is that, once again, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is his coronation to the throne of David. Now, you recall he he quoted the second psalm here, right? Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Okay? And then, of course, he quoted the passage in Psalm 16 that you'll not suffer your holy one to see corruption. Let's look at Psalm 2 for a minute, okay? The book of Psalms, second psalm. And and notice what the focus of Psalm 2 is. psalm 2 okay why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against his anointed saying let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords from us here we've got uh, a kingdom and we've got people rebelling against the king right okay verse 4 he that sits in the heavens shall laugh The Lord shall have them in derision. The rebellion isn't going to work. Verse 5, Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Here it is, verse 6, Yet have I, God speaking, set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. What's the holy hill of Zion? It's Jerusalem, right? Who's the king? It's Jesus. Now that king is identified. Verse 7, I will declare the decree. Now Jesus is speaking here in the first person. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now, when we read that phrase all by itself, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, we tend to think of the incarnation, right? The birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. It's not what it's talking about. When he says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, the beginning here is the beginning to the throne of David. Because notice he says in verse 6, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And then the king says, here's the basis. The Lord said to me, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now, here's the result of the beginning. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thy inheritance, and the uttermost part of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. We instructed you, judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they who put their trust in him. And so the whole context of Psalm 2 is the people are rebelling against God. God establishes his king upon his throne. And that king upon the throne that would exercise all the rule and authority of David was his only begotten son. And he says regarding the resurrected Christ, thou art my son this day have I begotten thee. And what has he begotten him to? He has begotten him to the throne of David. He gives him David's rod. And he rules the nations. And the nations come and kiss his feet in obeisance to his kingly authority and rule. Those who trust in him and submit to that rule are blessed. Those who rebel are destroyed with the rod of David. So, back to Acts 13. Verse 32. And we declare unto you glad tidings how that the promises which was made unto the fathers, God has fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that, here's the fulfillment, he has raised up Jesus again, as it is written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And so, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in which God says, with reference to that resurrection, that it was a beginning Because in a way it was, right? He's begetting his son back to life. I mean, he begot him the first time in the womb of Mary, right? And then he died. And then there's a beginning back to life of the second time in the resurrection. And then what does that beginning do? It begets him to sit on the throne. And now he's the king with the rod. And he's ruling the nations. And the heathen that are raging and the people that are imagining the vain thing that they're going to kick off God's rule... God says, my king is going to rule over you. So, the resurrection is intimately tied to the promise of the Davidic covenant. You never knew that, did you? Why did Jesus have to be raised again? Well, one of the reasons was so that he could be enthroned on the throne of David. And we see both Peter as well as Paul in Acts 2 and Acts 13 declaring that the resurrection was the fulfillment of the promise of the Davidic covenant that the Son of God was going to sit on the throne of David. All right, we're out of time and we're going to stop here. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the Davidic covenant. Thank you that our King Jesus sits on the throne of David and that he was resurrected, that he might be enthroned. Thank you that he's now sitting on that throne, uh, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. Father, we are confident that that will be the case, and that of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Thank you that he's now establishing that kingdom and ordering it with judgment and justice. Father, we do submit to that king. And Father, we are delighted that we are under his rule. We kiss his feet. We trust in him. We submit ourselves to his will. Thank you for our King David. In Jesus' name, amen.